Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Fitness. On today's show, we have Stan Efferding. This guy is an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to fitness, nutrition, training. Uh, He's the founder of The Vertical Diet, and this guy is more than qualified to be giving the advice that he does. I recommend to everybody to hop over to stanefferding.com. Go look at The Vertical Diet, purchase it, read it, start to live it. It is absolutely incredible. It's been a game changer for thousands of people. This guy coaches huge names like Half Thor Bjornsson, the mountain on Game of Thrones, who's one world's strongest man. Brian Shaw, who's also one world's strongest man several times. CrossFit athletes like Ben Smith and Camilla Blanc-Pazinet, and then a whole bunch of other people that he talks about in the show. Hop over onto Instagram and check him out, Stan Efferding, also The Vertical Diet. One thing that I've really enjoyed is his rants that he has on YouTube. They are a wealth of knowledge. He goes on three 10-minute walks a day, and that's something that he kind of prescribes out to people is three 10-minute walks a day and tells about all the benefits of doing it. Well, he's the kind of guy that lives what he teaches. So he goes out on these 10-minute walks, and then he'll do these rants. And I've learned so much from the rants. Definitely want you guys to head over there and check that out. He talks about in the episode how important it is to meal prep, how that's going to be the number one indicator of how well you do on your diet. And something that they have in the vertical diet is the vertical meals. So also, if you're looking for just some easy access to meals that you can throw in the freezer, pull out and cook, and they're super high quality, uh, check out their vertical meals. And I could just keep doing this intro forever because it was so exciting to talk with him. So I will stop, and I really hope that you guys enjoy today's episode. If you like it, please hop over to iTunes, give it a good review, and we will talk to you guys later. Bringing health, wellness, and fitness ideas right to your speakers with your host, Tyler Martin, learning from experts and average Joes alike. This is the Cracking Fitness Podcast. All right, Stan, we are live. Awesome. Thanks for the invitation, my friend. Hey, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I'm kind of a fanboy talking to Stan Efferding here, so I'm the, I'm the one who appreciates it. Um, uh, I met you a couple of years ago in Salt Lake. My wife and I were walking around at CrossFit Regionals, and I saw this big, strong dude walking around in a vertical diet shirt and pulling a like a, a suitcase full of food. I was like, that's Stan Efforting. <laughs> I don't go anywhere without my suitcase full of food. That's awesome. So do you prep all that yourself? I do. Yeah. I've got a meal prep company, the vertical meal prep company. And so I'll get those meals sent to me and then I'll take them with me when I travel. Some of them I'll heat up and put into thermos. So the day that I'm flying or uh, traveling, I can have my hot meals whenever I need them. And then the rest of them I'll pack into a checked bag, wrap them in a towel. And uh, I always stay places with a microwave and refrigerator so I can have meals throughout the course of the weekend. So I'm, I'm always eating the food that I've prepared or brought with me for however long I'm on I'm, uh, traveling. That's awesome. One, one thing that I think draws me to you and I think a lot of other people are kind of your one liners. Um, and one is compliance is the science. So you're uh, the living embodiment of that. 
Yeah, I've always found that the training was the fun part. It was the easy part. And most people do a pretty good job at that. What they don't do is is recover very well. And you don't build any muscle lifting weights. You just break it down. It's just the stimulus. And so the one thing that, <clears throat> that I was always good at from the time I was in college was being disciplined outside the gym. I always got to sleep at 10 o'clock. It was rare that I was up late. I always got a good night's sleep. And I always had my meals. I would pack them in my backpack to take them to class. Every three hours, like clockwork, or four hours, or whatever it was, I was never without a meal, and I planned ahead. That's kind of what I do for my athletes, too. It's not really glamorous. I just get in there and figure out how to get them what they need when they need it uh, in the most convenient fashion. And so when I say compliance is the science, it's not that you have to stick to some program you don't like. It's actually to find a program that you can comply with. And that would be true if if you're dieting, um, you want to pick the diet. I've always said that what's the best diet, the one you'll follow. So that's compliance is being able to find something that fits your schedule and your lifestyle. It's the best exercise, the one you'll do. And then you'll comply. If you ask somebody to go jump on a treadmill 40 minutes a day, the likelihood that'll happen long term is, is, is next to none. Yeah. But if you offer them three 10 minute walks, which is equivalent or better in my mind, for all the extra benefits that you get from blood sugar control and digestion improvements from walking post meal, those are those are sustainable. That's something that I'm able to do when I get to the airport. I can walk in the airport when I get to a hotel and I'm traveling. I travel nearly every weekend in ten countries and forty states in the last year. And I was able to stay on my program. I'm still able to train. I'm still able to eat the the foods that I prepare and bring with me. I'm still able to do my ten minute walks. I'm at the hotel at night. I'll walk before I go to bed or I'll wake up in the morning and walk after breakfast. It's something I can do just about anywhere. Yeah. So that's what compliance is the science means. It's not forcing somebody to do something that they don't want to do uh, or eat foods they don't want to eat. Because I'm, I'm, I have a diet. The vertical diet is very specific. And there's a reason why I recommend the foods I recommend. But I understand that, uh, that people can lose weight on just about any diet. My goal is to mitigate the reasons why they fail, and the biggest reasons for that, uh, you know, simply can be something uh, like poor energy or uh, hunger, and so I try and address those things. Of course, along with digestion problems and micronutrient deficiencies, etc. But the major thing, you know, not to rattle on too long, is that I design a program for people that they can adhere to long term, a lifestyle. Yeah. Well, that's what it's all about, right, is the lifestyle. Like you said, if it's something that we're not enjoying, we're definitely not going to continue to do it. That's true, yeah. Um, so I know about you, so, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to just talk, but I guess for listeners that don't know much about you, and, and I would imagine most of the listeners are, are, are newer to all of this, and so um, I did tell a, a few people we were going to chat today and, and a few people were excited and gave me some questions to ask you, but if you don't mind for the next few minutes, just kind of tell us about yourself, just, you know, childhood background, what brought you to where you're at right now? Sure. Yeah. Quick and dirty is, uh, you know, I grew up a skinny kid. I was a wrestled 106 as a freshman sophomore. Actually I was 98 pounds, but I wrestled at 106 cause we had a 98 pounder and didn't have a 106 guy. 115 is a junior. And senior. So by the time I got to college, I was only 140 pounds and I was skinny and I wanted to get bigger. So I started training. Unfortunately, I trained too much and ate too little and I wasn't gaining much size. So you know, over time, my thing was learning uh, what it took 
to grow, to get adequate calories, to get more sleep. I actually had to decrease the training stimulus. But I loved the whole field of, of fitness, strength and conditioning, nutrition, etc. So I studied exercise science at the University of Oregon. I've got a bachelor's of science degree from U of O. And after that, I tried training athletes for many years, but it's, it's hard to, it, back at the time, it was hard to support yourself being a personal trainer. And most of the athletes that I worked with at the time, they couldn't afford to pay. <laughs> they were yeah. College athletes themselves, college football players, University of Oregon, uh, track athletes, wrestlers, etc. So I learned a lot, but it was hard to make a living. And so I went about starting businesses and trying to make a living. And I was able to build uh, what now is my fifth multi-million dollar company over the course of my career, from um, telecommunications to engineering firm, multifamily, single family and commercial real estate construction and uh, operations. And now here I am in the later years, uh, had a great run of competing when I came back to competing, got my pro card in bodybuilding and set world records in powerlifting. And now utilizing the new uh, social media platform to make a living strictly from uh, the field that I've all, always loved. So I'm back, you know, helping people with nutrition and strength and conditioning uh, at an international level. And yeah, fortunately, it's been quite popular. And I've had the opportunity to work with some extraordinary coaches and now some extraordinary athletes. And really, what I offer is the culmination of over 30 years of experience and exposure to all this great information, all these great people. It's been a bit of a collaboration. I learn a lot from coaches and clients both. And the feedback that I get from them, uh, I try and pour back into the vertical diet, which is more than just a diet. It's sleep and hydration and nutrition and training. and It's just a whole uh, comprehensive lifestyle of how to improve your health and uh, your performance, obviously. Yeah, I've uh, I bought it on when when it was the 1.0, and then you guys send out the the updates. And uh, this 3.0 is awesome. I mean, it's all been awesome. But I would definitely recommend to anybody who's listening to hop over to theverticaldiet.com and and download that because it is just it is, it is so comprehensive. It is, and I that's the big thing is that it's never any one thing. Somebody asks me, you know, for help with the training program. I'm, I'm, I'm like, don't tie my hands because yeah. uh, that's that's only one small aspect. And uh, sleep is a huge component, and nutrition is an enormous component, and hydration is huge, and obviously recovery. Uh, so all of those things. And so you're right. I I started with uh, the Vertical Diet 1.0 was really uh, kind of a uh, was just a how-to of all of those things that I wanted my clients to do. I've been using the vertical diet for over 10 years, not under that name, but yeah. it's just been my training program for my clients. And every time I come across a client that asks me a question, I answer it in the vertical diet. So I have that available for the next client to yeah. see uh, that that's important. And then it's, now it's a living document. Now you access it via, via username and password. So if I get a question or if I have a particular client that I interact with that I'm able to help, um, I'll put that information, I'll update it. 
so ongoing now, the thing keeps building on itself. And of course, all the new information is free to anybody who bought any version. So that, um, you know, just recently I picked up Lane Johnson, the offensive lineman for the Philadelphia Eagles as a client. And there were a few things that I was able to help him with uh, that I share in the vertical diet. Uh, and so that other people can see they may have similar challenges and then can learn how to manage those. So it's really, um, it's very, very, very comprehensive. Everything that I think I, I that uh, either for health or performance that people should consider uh, optimizing because it's, again, it's never any one thing. Um, if somebody has high blood pressure, I've got a high blood pressure quick fix kit. And I talk about the, the leading contributors to that are apnea, hypothyroidism, um, potassium deficiency, long before you're ever concerned about whether or not you're hypertensive uh, to sodium sensitive individual, which is a small portion of the population. So I try and address things as a hierarchy of what are the most important contributors to those problems and uh, the fact that there's multiple contributors to those problems. And when you manage all of them, then you have much greater success. Same thing with the low testosterone quick fix kit. Um, I have, there's many things that contribute to that. And I address all of them and ask people not to just pick one or two, but to actually implement all of them. Yeah, and that, that's a super important part because how, how, how often do you hear people going to the doctor, hey, you have high blood pressure, okay, here's a pill. Or hey, I have low testosterone, okay, here, here's, a, here's an injection. And they're not really getting to the root cause, which comes down to rest and recovery. Not all the time, but a lot of times comes down to rest and recovery and, and eating and training and exercise. No, a hundred percent. And I would never suggest somebody doesn't go to a doctor. They want to oh, absolutely, you know, have that intervention, but taking a blood pressure pill, whether it be a diuretic or calcium channel blocker doesn't cure the problem. Yeah. And uh, it's reactive, not proactive. And so the problem still exists, and there's side effects from that. When you take diuretics, you now you sodium deplete yourself, and now your energy levels crash. Uh, so, sodium, you know, salt in general, sodium chloride, hydrochloric acid is how you digest food. There's so many adverse effects to taking medications like antacids or blood pressure medication that should be fixed on the front end with lifestyle changes. Uh, but people don't don't consider those things. You know, they're not quick. They're not quick fixes. They're, it's your own personal responsibility, and and you have to be disciplined and you have to implement those uh, those lifestyle changes in order to get the benefits. So, I understand that the doctors can only spend seven minutes with you, and so they can't yeah. design a diet or a sleep protocol or an exercise program. And uh, they're probably not terribly confident that you'll comply with it anyhow. And so, in the meantime. <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a triage situation in order to mitigate immediate damage from high blood pressure. They've, they've got to, you know, intervene and hope that she'll make the necessary uh, improvements long term. But, you know, generally speaking, with the state of our uh, health the way it is, people tend not to make those changes. And there are no quick fixes. And none of the medications that I'm aware of actually cure uh, high blood pressure or cure um you know, high cholesterol problems, um, you need to, to get in and, and have an adequate diet and exercise program. The problem is, as we start prescribing these diets that are, you know, like the kind of we started out that are unsustainable, yeah. telling people that they have to eliminate an entire food groups or, um, you know, entire macro groups, 
uh, or you know, we, we recommend a training program that's completely unsustainable and unenjoyable. And yeah. it doesn't have to be that hard at all. Yeah. Um, I just had a podcast. My last one was with a guy named Dr. Nick and he works for steady MD and this is kind of a new, well, uh, hopefully the trend is going in this direction, but their idea is that they spend up to an hour with a patient and yeah. a full picture of things and they can prescribe diet and exercise. And then if things go further, you know, and we do need to do medication later on, then, then they do it. Um, but I really hope that that's the way that we can start to make medicine go. Uh, I think it'll just be better for all of society. Yeah. Or outsource doctors can recommend, uh, you know, quality nutritionists or, uh, exercise programs and have them monitor and supervise. We know from research a few things. We know that the most likely, uh, successful outcomes are determined by, uh, well, the first and foremost is, is meal prep. And that's what the bodybuilding figure physique bikini industry does very well. They prep all of their meals. And that's probably one of the major reason why they're successful in dieting. And uh, the general population, whether you buy from a meal prep company or you prep your own meals, if you plan and you make and you measure out and you have, uh, you know, multiple pre-measured meals that are consistent with your diet plan, you're much, much more likely. Matter of fact, it's the single most uh, successful predictor uh, of of long-term weight loss and, and weight loss maintenance is meal prep. And so that's one of the first things I recommend. Obviously, I own a meal prep company. I'd be yeah. more than happy if someone would utilize mine, but you don't have to. You can use Jenny Craig or you can make your own. It doesn't matter. The fact is, is that meal prep in general is the, uh, is the number one compliance. And then secondary to that, probably coupled together would be um, tracking, having some sort of method of tracking, like some people do with apps. And of course, I've got an app coming out. And the reason why is because tracking is uh, a highly successful behavior in terms of weight loss and weight loss maintenance. Uh, things like weighing yourself daily, measuring your, you know, recording your sleep. Uh, at least that way you can identify if you have a shortcoming. And, and you know, things that um, get tracked tend to get improved. And if you just don't pay attention to it, and if it's not sitting there staring you in the face as, uh, you know, a problem, then you may, might be less likely to remedy it. So we track those kinds of things. The 10-minute walks, the daily 10-minute walks would be about all that you would need to, uh, to improve your weight loss and long-term maintenance. And also, it provides an adequate cardiovascular fitness stimulus. Just a brisk 10-minute walk three times a day, uh, probably a 13-minute mile gives you about all the, the cardiovascular benefit that you need, uh, as has been tested, uh, for uh, a long and healthy life. You don't have to, to jog at a certain pace or run so many miles or do CrossFit or, uh, you know, you just don't have to be that extreme. They measure that in terms of your VO2, uh, which is measured in METs, metabolic equivalents, and seven metabolic equivalents seems to be able to be accomplished with about a 13-minute mile walking, and that seven metabolic equivalents has provided uh, data in studies to show that that is enough to give you all the cardiovascular fitness you need to give you the, ma the majority benefit for um, decreasing all-cause mortality and having a long and healthy life in terms of cardiovascular fitness. So that's, that's a really low threshold, and it's sustainable. Yeah. And so those kinds of things, I think, are, are what's most important is um, 
meal prepping and tracking and uh, a coach, having a coach, either a, um, a spouse that's supporting you or um, a trainer at the gym. It seems like of all the measurements that, that we've done to see who complies, the least successful is your clinician, your registered dietitians and your um, medical doctors, uh, probably because you don't interact with them often enough is the biggest reason. And just having a plan isn't, isn't really, uh, doesn't really lead to success. Complying with it and tracking it over time is what's most important. And a coach, the frontline people, your trainer, uh, generally speaking, is the one who's going to hold you accountable. And that's why when I have clients, I make them uh, send me a text every single day. And they have to send me their body weight every morning. And they have to send me a picture of every meal they eat. And that's really more for accountability for them than it is for me. I can intervene where I see problems arise. Uh, I know that there's been plenty of research to suggest that when you weigh yourself daily, particularly through the holiday season, that you gain less weight than those people who don't weigh. And if you do uh, have a, a binge or you have a cheat meal or you go out with your friends, and uh, that's not a big deal. But if you have two or three or if it goes on for three days or a week or three weeks, then that's a problem. But if you're weighing every day, you seem to get back on track quicker. And that's what the accountability, the, the measurements and having somebody to, uh, to uh, uh, be held accountable to really helps with. And so I do that with, with all of my clients. I have, I have contact with them every single day. That makes sense. Something that, that I've liked about the vertical diet is that I'm trying to get everything that's recommended in the day. So, you know, get the carrot and the red meat and the spinach. And then I just have it laid out to where, you know, every day that's what I'm eating. And then, you know, at least micronutrient wise, uh, you're probably okay. Well, that's a huge piece of it is that we build a foundation first. The foundation is micronutrient dense, highly bioavailable, easy to digest foods. And from there, you know, I would say you can't put a three bedroom house on a two bedroom foundation. Once you build a foundation uh, that has a broad spectrum of micronutrients, adequate potassium, adequate iron, B12, zinc, magnesium, uh, calcium, selenium, all of those things. Once you build that foundation, now depending on your workload, if you're a, a, a CrossFitter training twice a day or if you're a 300-pound strongman, you can increase calories. You can build a skyscraper on top of that foundation. And I use the same diet with a 450-pound Hofdor Bjornsson as I do with a 97-pound ballet performer for the Sacramento Ballet Company. It's the same exact diet. I just adjust for calories, so the quantities of food decrease, but the physiology is the same. The, the body needs all of these micronutrients. That's why I recommend red meat, because it's higher in iron and B12 and zinc and selenium than chicken. Uh, and you can get a really lean, lean red meat, like a sirloin tip or a uh, top brown that's going to be almost as lean as chicken if cutting fat is your concern. I put whole eggs in there every day, at least one or two. Uh, Brian Shaw eats 36 whole eggs a day. And people with any concern about cholesterol, there's only a small percentage of the population that has uh, genetic or familial hypercholesteremia. And those folks that you do want to um, make sure that folks get blood tests so you can see if that's a concern. But for the vast majority of the population, uh, cholesterol isn't even considered a nutrient to concern by the Dietetic Association. And they've had done studies on eggs 
and how beneficial they are for burn patients, uh, showing that they recover the best eating up to 36 egg yolks in particular a day. And so that, that's where the studies came from. They found out that they had such extraordinary recovery in comparison to other food items in burn clinics and uh, hospitals that uh, they studied the cholesterol levels on those people and found that it did not impact their cholesterol levels. But it was extraordinary for increasing uh, strength and hypertrophy. And that's one of the biggest concerns uh, when you're working with somebody in a hospital setting is that they're losing muscle tissue. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the ways that you can maintain it. And then some of the other small things is just that every day I make sure you get 4,700 milligrams of potassium, and that's really hard to do. And especially for people who are performing at a high level, it's extremely valuable. People don't appreciate how important potassium is. And you have to get a daily potato and some daily spinach, possibly, uh, a little bit of fruit and maybe some yogurt. 100 milligrams of potassium for every ounce of red meat. It's 150 milligrams for every ounce of, of salmon. So you have to cobble together a host of different resources. I have fruits in everybody's diet every day. I have a potato in everybody's diet every day, unless they respond poorly to it. I have spinach in everybody's diet every day, unless they respond poorly to it. I'm cautious about making sure that I listen to my athletes and they tell me if they have any stomach reactions or if their stool is inconsistent. I don't want people with diarrhea or constipation. Yeah. I want to make sure, you know, because you're not just what you eat, you're what you're digest and absorb. And so I focus on, on using the kinds of foods that are easiest to digest. And then I, I have a huge section on the benefits of sodium when used uh, responsibly, how great it can be for performance and energy and stamina and endurance and recovery and a host of other things as well as iodine, which you sweat out when you exercise, and how important that is to thyroid function, yeah. which is important for your metabolism. So I do build a foundation, just like you said, of foods that you should get in every day because they're so rich in micronutrients that are so necessary for, for not just performance, but just your general health. And then from there, we can you know build uh, that thing, build that skyscraper as tall as we want. I can fuel you know 300-plus-pound athletes just by adding – uh, more calories, easily digestible calories, which is why I'll push white rice for people who have really high calorie or really high workload demands. It's just so easy to digest and it's strictly being used uh, as an energy source. And I want to be cautious to give them foods that don't bog them down, kind of avoid pizza, pasta, pancakes, and too much grains and legumes and uh, oatmeal because it can be hard to digest in a significant quantity. But it's individualistic and it's dose dependent. And if, you know, if they can cook it a in a way that minimizes the, the adverse effects, the anti-nutrients, the lectins and the, um, you know, the anti-nutrients, the, the phytic acid, et cetera, then you know, I can maintain good stomach health and good digestion and still give them all the nutrition that they need. So when you say if someone tolerates it, um, that's one thing that I really enjoy about the diet is you know, talking about things that you tolerate well. What should people be looking for you know, a lot of times people are eating stuff and I don't even think they realize that they're not tolerating it. So what should people be looking for to know if they tolerate or do not tolerate a food? Yeah, I include that in the diet as well. I have that cautionary list of foods and I'll, I'm quick to say that if, if just because the food isn't tolerated well by someone doesn't mean it's unhealthy in general for, for the vast majority of the population. It's just that it's been my experience that certain foods can aggravate digestion and so Initially, I'll eliminate them and then I can reintroduce them or I'm concerned about the way they're prepared or the quantity that they're consumed. 
some of the biggest culprits is, uh, is going to be things like sugar alcohols, which are indigestible and will give you diarrhea. And that's in most of your protein bars and protein powders. It's also in like Halo Top ice cream and a lot of things that uh, they, people want to be sweet but don't want too many calories. Sugar alcohol will wreak havoc on you. And there's natural sorbitol uh, in things like avocado even. And so you might be able to handle a little bit of it, but it's cumulative. If you eat too much of it too often, uh, over time, you're, as your body tries to digest those sugar alcohols, which it can't, uh, that's when you start accumulating a lot of, um, of these problems, the diarrhea, the gas, the bloating, the methane production in the large intestine. But that can happen you know, cumulatively. Like even with oatmeal, you eat one cup, you might be fine. But eat a second cup or start doing that two or three days in a row, and the bacteria starts accumulating in the large intestine. You start generating more and more gas from consuming, you know, that, that quantity of that food over time. So I'm real cautious to look at some of those things. Grains uh, can be hard for some people to digest. And again, that's dose dependent and individualistic. Vegetable oils is the big one I try and go out and go hard against because I just think it's poison. Those yeah. processed vegetable oils can cause lots of digestion problems. I don't think they're healthy. I think we're, we're seeing more and more research to suggest. We knew that when we got rid of trans fats, that, you know, Frisco and margarine that was foisted upon us in the 1960s because they paid millions of dollars to the American Heart Association to market them as heart-healthy foods. Uh, it took 40 years to get those things off the market, and we're still being um, you know, forced to, to consider vegetable oils as healthy foods, and they're not, so I avoid those like the plague. And then some, you know, just some high FODMAP foods. This isn't just Stan saying, oh, don't eat these because it gives you gas. There's actually been lots of research done in high FODMAP, fermentable oligo dye, monosaccharides. These are foods that um, create a lot of gas when you try and eat them. Your body has a hard time digesting them. Those are foods like broccoli and cauliflower and asparagus, even garlic. Uh, and those are foods that may be healthy for some folks. So, you know, the sulforaphanes are supposed to be anti-cancer agents. Uh, but it's been my experience and it's been the experience of the research in creating the FODMAP, uh, the low FODMAP diet, that if you avoid some of those high gas foods and you alternatively use low gas vegetables, such as spinach, carrots, squash, and cucumber, those kinds of foods tend to be easier to digest. And so those are the major items that, that I focus on initially. Uh, even something like baking a potato putting it in the refrigerator and letting it cool overnight and then reheating and eating it the next day. As it cools, it converts to res more resistant starches. So when you reheat it and eat it later, you might get gas from the inability to digest the greater quantity of resistant starch. So I'm specific enough to say, how is that potato being prepared? If, you're, if you have gas, then I'm looking at their menu and saying and asking them how those particular foods are prepared or asking for a picture of a label. I can see some of there might be a contributing factor to if they're eating something out of a can or a bag, or uh, which I obviously don't recommend, but there are some things that you can't avoid, such as bone broth. Some broths are made with vegetable oil and garlic, and uh, those things can aggravate some people's digestion. So I, I ask them to find one that's absence of those ingredients. In my meal prep company, we had the hardest time sourcing eggs that weren't already um, diluted or cut or mixed with. Uh, vegetable oils. Almost all of them come with canola oil or soybean oil as they come in those five-gallon buckets, you know, to yeah. restaurants. 
And so even if a meal prep company tells you they don't use vegetable oils in preparing your food, some of the food shows up with vegetable oil already in it. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we've tried to mitigate um, and have been successful in doing so. We cook our food in, in beef tallow and bone broth, and we make sure it's sourced. As, uh, our eggs and our bone broth is sourced so that it does not have any processed vegetable oils, the three C's and the three S's. That's your canola, cotton seed, corn oil, your safflower, sunflower, and soybean oil. We avoid those like the plague. And, um, that, uh, for us, has been really successful. Our, our clients, the, you know, just the, whether they cook it themselves or they eat our food when they avoid those things, like you mentioned, the food's really easy to digest and it feels good on the stomach and you're not gassy and bloated and you're flat. Uh, and that, that's a, that makes for huge, huge difference in terms of compliance. Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, if we're eating something that makes us okay. So my wife, if she eats something that doesn't do well with her, she feels it immediately. And I, I'm actually pretty jealous of that because I can, <laughs> I can eat a lot of, a lot of crap and not really feel it. Yeah, and that discussion that I just had about the cumulative nature of some foods, you wouldn't even be able to look back and see. You're like, well, I ate the oatmeal yesterday. It was fine. Yeah. And so you'd blame it on something else today. But it really was the fact that you had reached your threshold by eating it two days or three days in a row or, or you know, it's the cumulative effect of, of reaching a certain volume and your, your bacteria in your gut, you know, those will accumulate based on the kinds of foods that you eat. And some of those bacteria, as I mentioned, in the large intestine trying to break down indigestible fibers will uh, create methane. And that's where the gas and bloating comes from. And you won't know it. For some people, won't know it until they've been eating the same food for three or four days. Yeah. And that, that's one reason why you're a big fan of the, the thermos, right, is that the foods are staying warm. So they're not cooling and getting that bacteria that can then cause indigestion. Yeah, that's a big reason. Obviously, convenience is another thing. Running around airports trying to find a microwave to heat up your cold Tupperware of chicken and whatever yeah. uh, became pretty annoying. And you know, just the fact that the food isn't kept safe if it's allowed to cool like that in many cases. So it's really convenient for me when I leave the house in the morning. I usually fly out every Friday and I'm home on Sunday night. And I have to make sure and manage that time span with meals. And I don't want to be shopping around for a whole variety of different things, hitting up restaurants or airplane food for God forbid, or air, airport food. You know, all that stuff is, is loaded with vegetable oils. And just the sheer variety can start to wreak havoc on your stomach. When I work with athletes, I never uh, suggest they introduce new foods, particularly as it nears competition time. I want them to eat the same things they've been eating, uh, the, the stomach that's been good on their stomach, they're used to eating. I've always said that I don't eat foods I like, I eat foods that like me. And I make that decision about an hour after I eat. Yeah. So I want them to, to have a, a diet plan that they're comfortable with, that doesn't cause um, you know, digestion problems or gas or bloating or give them diarrhea or any of those things, and then stick with that plan. So when I pull out of here, on, uh, I get up Friday morning, I'll eat breakfast, I'm heating up two or three thermosfuls of extra food. And I'll, I'll heat them up real hot and I'll pop them in the thermos and the thermos keeps them hot for 12 to 14 hours. I had five thermos when I flew to uh, the UK. It was a 16 hour day to get over there with the layover. And I had my own meals every three or four hours. I was able to sit there and eat on my schedule. I took my 10 minute walks in the airports in between the flights. Uh, I, I stand up quite often in the plane. I always try to get an aisle seat and 
stretch out and walk up and down the aisle. It sounds ridiculous, but I'm uh, I'm very disciplined about you know maintaining my my homeostasis and giving my body what it needs. And it needs a lot of movement and it needs a lot of uh, the right foods. Um, I'm not even competing anymore, but I know I need to maintain an intake of around 4,500 calories a day, or I'm going to start losing weight and size and strength, and then my performance suffers. And so I'm I'm trying to give people tools here. You know, thermos for twenty dollars on Amazon, uh, yeah. and it's 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 amazing how much more beneficial that is than throwing Tupperwares into a bag and then having to eat cold food or um, you know chase a microwave somewhere. And then the next, I also throw a dozen frozen meals into my check luggage. I wrap them in a towel and put a bungee cord around it and throw in my check luggage. And then when I get to wherever I'm going, I'll uh, stay at a hotel with a fridge and microwave and I'll cook my own meals all weekend. And that enables me to get through the entire weekend without having, you know, one time to have a, a room service pizza. And, you know, obviously the results of that is something I'm trying to avoid. Yeah. Do you ever get sick of the same foods? I don't. And yeah. you know, here's the funny thing, because I know that, um, that now in the industry, everybody's jumping up and down about um, if it fits your macros or flexible dieting and, well, a lot of that's been researched, and what we see is is that the more cheat days you have, uh, the less likely you are to be successful. And that's it's one cheat day, two cheat days, three cheat days. It's a linear equation. Yeah. Uh, we also see that food reward, meaning eating things that you're hungry for, people tend to eat more of them. And so if every time you go to eat, you look for something that you're hungry for, the likelihood that you're going to eat more of it is, is very good. When you tend to eat the same things more consistently, uh, then you don't eat as much. And you're less likely to have the adverse effects of the digestion problems. And this has also been studied. The uh, weight control registry has over 10,000 participants. They've uh, lost over 60 pounds and kept it off for over five years. And they study their behaviors. And they tend to eat the same foods over and over again, seems to be one of the behaviors that leads to success. That's not to say that, that, you know, you can't have a cheat meal or you can't have a variety of things that you enjoy, uh, but you're going to have to be careful about managing how much of those you eat if weight loss is your primary goal and weight loss maintenance. I have to be cautious to say that because all diets work. Six out of seven people who go on a diet lose weight. Weight loss means very little. I'm, I'm not, I don't get excited when somebody says they lost weight on a diet. I get excited when they say they, they kept it off because the vast majority of people gain the weight back. And that happens with, you know, a host of these behaviors that I mentioned that people don't consistently stay on their, uh, on a diet, um, either because they get hungry or they get tired because the diet is inadequate in the nutrition that they need. And it doesn't address things like, um, you know, binge eating and cravings, etc. And, uh, or they just don't get adequate iron or B12 and they just get fatigued from lack of energy because they don't have the micronutrients they need. So if it fits your macros, doesn't address that problem. Yeah. If it fits your macros, doesn't address gut health. It doesn't address micronutrients and it doesn't address sustainability uh, of a diet program. So uh, I'm you know, not trying to shut anybody else's diet. I'm just saying that those are potential pitfalls uh, yeah. of a program. If you recognize that, that those are things that, that need to be managed, then you might be able to do it more responsibly. But generally speaking, it takes a pretty knowledgeable individual to maintain a diet using a variety of different foods 
like going out to one restaurant one day and another restaurant the next day and etc because we're terrible predictors uh, uh, all the menus can be off by 50 percent labels on food items at grocery stores can be off by 20 percent and we ourselves are generally off by 50 percent just estimating portion size yeah. you can see how how difficult it can be for the layman uh, even you know us in the industry who are experienced with this have to be careful yeah, that's really interesting. I like that. Um, so I have some some listener questions. If uh, if you don't mind, I can ask those and yeah, on them. Um, and I didn't I didn't censor any of them. So one of them is about donuts. But uh, um, the first one is from a a lady who's a a diabetic, and she was just wondering about white rice and insulin resistance, and if she should worry there at all. Well, it depends. Type. Type 1 diabetics, um, you know, I've had many, many diabetics that uh, I work with over the years, and they generally are able to reduce their insulin and they have more energy. That's kind of the goal. That's, the, uh, that's what we'd like to do with most people. Obviously, you can't eliminate insulin with type 1 diabetics. Uh, but it kind of depends on how much you eat the, 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 the glucose load, uh, how much of it you eat, and whether or not you exercise when you eat can be important for controlling glucose the 10 minute walks are great for mitigating blood sugar spikes and the duration of blood sugars uh, that the muscles will absorb glucose directly from the bloodstream in the absence of insulin so it kind of helps the whole process so the 10 minute walks is something i absolutely recommend i have a high blood pressure or blood sugar quick fix kit in the vertical diet 3.0 because I've, mm. I've had this question so many times i've worked with so many people who are type 1 and type 2 diabetic and uh, obviously improving sleep is a huge component uh, it always kind of starts there in terms of blood sugar control the 10 minute walks post meal are huge uh, and then meal timing, whether or not you eat those meals around workouts, you tend to absorb carbohydrates a little better around workouts. So, uh, and again, you know, the, the, the foundation of the diet is a potato and some fruit first, because, and fruit actually has been shown in studies to decrease hemoglobin A1C. It helps with, uh, with blood sugars. And so I absolutely recommend fruits. Uh, the potato might need to be timed because uh, it's quickly absorbed or do a 10 minute walk after the meal and then watch the dose, maybe half a potato twice a day. But I build the foundation with those foods because they're so high in potassium. And, and the white rice, you really only get to that if you have a high workload anyhow. If you're doing CrossFit twice a day or you're an MMA fighter or you have, and you like to jog uh, long distances, then that might be the person that would, that would introduce some white rice and the load would be mitigated by the work. So those things are all important, and it, it, uh, blood sugars is something I, I focus on uh, with all of my athletes, even if they don't have type 2 diabetes or if they, uh, if they just have some modest insulin resistance maybe in a uh, pre-diabetic range. I want to mitigate that because it impairs performance, that they're not uh, partitioning nutrients to, to muscle tissue. They're getting stored as fat too easily. And so I might drop some weight off of them, uh, look at their liver, uh, some people with fatty liver disease maybe and may have high blood sugars need to mitigate that. And of course, I, I try and attack that with a little bit of weight loss initially in the 10-minute walks. And then getting things like choline and B12 and folate into the diet really, really helps the liver 
Uh, and if, uh, if they have any serious liver issues, then we're going to want to try and get N-acetylcysteine and Tudka, which I advise in the diet, to bring those ASD-ALT enzymes down. And, uh, the liver seems to be one of the key things that, that helps people with blood sugars and uh, cholesterol uh, and thyroid function. 80% of the inactive T4 is converted to the active form T3 in the liver. So you can see there's a reason why we do everything we do, and it's multifaceted. It's not simply uh, one single food. It's a host of different micronutrients. It includes the sleep. It includes the 10-minute walks post-meal, which are more than just cardiovascular fitness. They actually will help with blood sugars, digestion, you know, DOMS for delayed uh, recovery from workouts. So that's the long answer. I hope there's enough information in there where um, she can benefit from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, blood sugar is just an interesting one. I, I've never really had issues with it, but I started wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor about a month ago just because I was curious. And uh, it's nuts what different foods do to your blood sugar. Uh, you know, you might think that ice cream or a donut does one thing, but I've found that tacos actually raise my blood sugar more than anything else that I've eaten. Um, and obviously, like raising your blood sugar is not not a not a terrible thing. It just depends on, you know, how quickly it's absorbed and, and all of that. But it's been very eye-opening to, to look at that data. You're absolutely right. It does matter how high and how long. You, that's why the fasted glucose, uh, the, the blood tests looking at your fasted glucose levels, your HA1C, your four-month average are better indicators, and your insulin levels. Uh, another thing we look at. I get blood tests on most of my apps. Uh, particularly if they haven't gotten the results they want after the first month. I'd like to see if they have any blood sugar problems or testosterone or thyroid problems that might be contributing factors. But generally speaking, when they get on the diet and they improve all of the things, uh, the lifestyle changes that I recommend, all of those things improve anyhow because that's kind of the solution. If you have low thyroid or low T or high blood pressure, <laughs> blood pressure or blood sugars, the solution is to get more sleep, to walk more, and to lose some weight. And all of a sudden, those things start to go away, irrespective of the diet you're on. I spoke of the McDonald's diet, where the professor had his students tracking eating McDonald's every day. And he only ate 1,850 calories, and he walked every day, and he lost 40 pounds. And all of his markers, his health markers, improved his blood sugar, his blood pressure, and his cholesterol. So uh, weight loss seems to be uh, the primary driver of health outcomes, probably 95% uh, of the the health benefits come simply from weight loss itself, irrespective of the diet that you're on. I'm specific with the recommendations in my diet because uh, I want to manage things like hunger and energy because a lot of diets, you end up getting very hungry and very tired and then you come off of them. And so that's really what I'm focused on. If, if you're not you know, voraciously hungry or have huge cravings and you're not tired all the time, you'll probably stay on the diet longer. And compliance uh, for me is, is the most important thing that I can I can do for a client and a lot of people will be chasing sugars and really they're just sodium and potassium deficient that helps to mitigate mitigate cravings and so that's why they're so important in the diet and a lot of people lose energy when they go on a diet because they over restrict uh, they, they tend to avoid red meat well there's your iron and your b12 which are two of the key contributors to fatigue if you're deficient in them uh, and they might avoid eggs whole eggs well there's your biotin so that's your skin hair and nails so if you wonder why you're thyroid slowing and your hair's falling out from a restrictive egg whites and, and white fish and broccoli diets, there's your answer. Uh, and then people tend to avoid salt. And on a restricted diet, 
where you're not eating fast food, you're not eating packaged food from grocery stores, you're probably not getting enough salt to give you the energy that you need. And so I would have people salt their food intentionally because uh, the diet has restricted it. And those kinds of things lend to better energy. And now you're not tired and you can stay on the diet. So those, those things are huge. So somebody asked, how do you make donuts good for you? <laughs> I just, I wouldn't stress about it. And I even said in the diet that, uh, you know, if you want to go out and have a glass of Moscato, just, just count it. Just be aware that, that it's calories. And so, you know, just with my example of the McDonald's diet, you, know, you can be a successful dieter. My biggest concern is how much and how often uh, you have those kinds of treats. How do they affect your digestion? And do they then, uh, if say you're on a 1800 calorie diet and 500 of those calories are pretty uh, vacant of micronutrients, how are you going to get all, where are you going to get all your iron and potassium and, and B12 now? You, you have very little room left. And so you, that's the time to be cautious is when those empty calories, as I call them, just because they don't have very many vitamins and minerals in them, uh, replace, you know, nutrient dense calories then it's hard to get all of those nutrients that you need to, to, to maintain your energy and just to be healthy in general. So throw a donut in, but account for it. Watch how much and how often, if that's your cheat. But the bigger thing for me is, is, is what if, it, if it's one of those triggers that is adversely affecting your digestion, causing you gut problems? You know, somebody who's got celiac disease shouldn't cheat with uh, gluten. And somebody who's got, you know, IBS has to be cautious about what kind of cheap foods they use because it might aggravate their digestion problem. I say the same thing about sleep. You know, what if you applied the 80-20 rule to sleep? What if one night a week you just went on a bender and stayed out all night? Does that affect just that night? Or does it affect you for the next 48 to 72 hours? Yeah. I, I make that comparison. Let's, let's apply the 80-20 rule or the, the flexible sleeping rule. And so, you know, one night a week, just don't sleep. See how it affects your overall performance. I look at nutrition the same way. Uh, you know, apply the 80-20 rule, but watch how much impact that 20% has on you overall. And you can still have some extra calories or a certain food that you enjoy, assuming it doesn't have some significantly adverse effect on you. I'm a paramedic and a firefighter and I can, I firsthand know what not sleeping does to a, a diet and health and it's, and performance. It's crazy. Oh, I talk about it all the time and I include uh, videos in the, the vertical diet has over 220, I think references to uh, research, peer reviewed published research as well as articles written by uh, I think highly regarded professionals and videos on YouTube provide a bunch of links so if people want to take a deeper dive into the information supporting my recommendations and one of them is Dr. Matthew Walker talking with Joe Rogan about his work and he's a, a PhD and a sleep specialist and he talks about that as well and you know it dramatically affects uh, things like your testosterone and thyroid function as well it suppresses those uh, and it can increase blood pressure significantly and it tends to cause a huge sodium loss if you've got apnea or something like that. But I get firemen in their 20s that come to me with a, a testosterone of 200 yeah. uh, just because they don't have any extended sleep. 
Well, they try and sleep in patches. So sleep two hours here and an hour there and take a nap and then sleep for three hours. It doesn't work that way. You can't, you know, I would never suggest somebody not sleep when they're tired, but you cannot build a seven hour night of sleep out of three or four different shorter uh, sleep cycles. It, it doesn't work that way because the, the stage three and the, the, the REM and stage four restorative sleep, those, uh, the length of time you're in those sleep cycles gets longer the longer you sleep throughout the night. They, they go in cycles. And so when you get into, the, say, the third and fourth cycle, your six, seven, eight hours of sleep, your restorative sleep increases in duration. And if you never get past three or four hours of sleep, you're never getting very much restorative sleep. There are how many little patchworks that you put together. And you know, one of the big things is it, it affects you in terms of health, sure, but it affects you mentally, as you know, performance Absolutely. mentally, which is a huge deal. And it also dramatically increases uh, rates of injury in athletics. So it's a huge component. Yeah, well, and then a lot of people fall into, hey, when I'm not on shift, then you, you resort to the sleep aids, and then you're not hitting those stages of sleep that you need to be. And it's just a, it's a bad deal. I actually wish there was some way to change the whole industry to not – to not require the 48 hours worth of work or, you know, whatever it ends up being, but that's a, uh, yeah. And that's thing you said thing. there are huge. The sleep aids actually prevent you from getting into REM and stage four sleep. Yeah. Most of them do. So you may even sleep a whole night, but you'll wake up still tired because you haven't gotten the restorative sleep. The sleep aids prevent it. And, you know, it's interesting what you said about uh, whether the industry would change. Uh, there was a research study done out of Stanford university on basketball teams and on the on the NBA and they did not have the names of the teams or the players but they were able to predict with 75% accuracy the winners based on the sleep schedules whether or not there was a team had four back-to-back -back games in five days whether or not they traveled uh, east coast west coast and had a short night's sleep they just looked at the potential for sleep loss based on their schedule and their travel schedule and were able to predict the winning team uh, with great accuracy. They were also able to document an increase in injuries. And that's when LeBron James took that, that research to the players' union. Uh, and uh, they lobbied to get those schedules improved. So they used that science to stop doing the four games in five days and stop doing and allowing for an extra day when you traveled long distance or overseas. So there, there might be, you know, a good reason for that. The injuries would be a huge reason, a huge potential reason to be able to change those schedules. I have to say this on sleep. If you do work shifts, because I can't be a hypocrite here. I realize that people can't change that. That's their job. But rather than trying to get a couple of three hour stints, they're much better off when they get home from work, whether they work at night shifts, they get home at 7 a.m managing their environment, their sleep environments, and setting an expectation that they're going to get seven hours of sleep, if at all possible. And they have to do three or four things. Dr. Matthew Walker talks about these as well. They're going to have to control that environment. They're going to have to get blackout blinds. Because when the sun rises in the morning and comes through the window and hits your skin, I don't care if you're wearing eye blinders over your eyes, the melatonin is going to be affected and, and your body's going to, going to start to wake up. You have to use blackout blinds in your room, those are cheap those at Home Depot, you know, you get back to Two, you're going to have to control the noise. Your neighbor starts running his lawnmower at 9 a.m., and you just went to bed at 7. 
And so I went to Home Depot and just got a pair of those um, those muffles, mufflers for your ears that you use when you're operating a backpack blower, and those will knock out 90% of the noise. And you may even have to sleep in a, a separate room. Lane Johnson sleeps in a separate room. He has three kids. And when season comes, he has to sleep in a separate room so he's not woken up by the family uh, when he's trying to sleep. Um, yeah. uh, what's his name? Uh, Michael Hearn has a, had a knife nanny because his is, is so intense. Uh, and so he had a night nanny when they had the baby so he wouldn't get woken up. Uh, you know, it's one of the things you have to mitigate. Three would be the temperature. Uh, in the room, you obviously want to keep it cool, have an air conditioning if possible, if it's in a warm climate. Keep that down around 68 degrees or so. You tend to sleep better in that. So if you can control the, the noise and the light and the temperature and be committed to try and get seven straight hours, it really doesn't matter if you sleep uh, from 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, what we found in the research shows as well, they, they looked at, two, at sports teams, uh, and they said that those that went to bed at 10 p.m. or whether they went to bed at 3 a.m., so long as they got their full eight hours, in this test it was for eight hours, it might have been as many as they, they had equivalent performance. And so I'm not as concerned about the schedule per se as I am about the uh, broken up sleep. If you can try and just make sure you get that seven hours, you, you'll be way ahead of the game in terms of mitigating that, that, uh, uh, that problem with your schedule. That's cool. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I fall into that, you know, sleep two hours here, sleep 30 minutes there. I, I've fallen into that for sure. So I, I really appreciate that information. Yeah, um, absolutely doesn't work. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a painful existence and I've lived it. I remember when I had apnea really bad and I would wake up in the morning and I was falling asleep driving to work. Yeah. I would sit at my desk at work and I would, I would just, the eyes were so heavy that it was painful just to keep my eyes open. I remember what it's like to walk around with brain fog all day because you're exhausted. So, you know, I'm, I'm not preaching here. I'm, I'm, I'm coming from a position of understanding. I lived yeah. it and I'm so passionate about it because I know it's painful to live that way. And I want people to do everything they can to control that environment and get that seven hours. And that's life changing. And I don't say that about a lot of things, yeah. but sleep or if you have apnea, if you're snoring and waking up tired, Get a CPAP and get one today. Get on Craigslist and, and Google CPAP, and they're like $200, and they're auto-paps. And they, they, uh, you, know, you don't even really have to have somebody set them for you because they interpret your breathing. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm going bare bones here because some people can't afford it, or some people don't have uh, the time or the money or, or a medical doctor. Uh, it's that important if you're yeah. snoring and waking up tired. That's another huge component. Uh, if you're sleeping with apnea, it's the same as if you're not sleeping at all and you're holding your breath. It's actually worse than not sleeping at all because your blood oxygenation levels go way down and tissues start dying. That's what's happening to you when you have sleep apnea. Your tissues are dying, your brain tissues. You're not recovering from exercise. You're getting dumber and weaker uh, and fatter. Uh, so I can't emphasize enough how important it is. And I put it in the diet. It's one of the first things I cover. And I even put links to uh, which CPAP to buy and to get on Craigslist if you need to. I, I, I go down the hierarchy of, of uh, how important it is and how to mitigate that problem. So uh, a huge suggestion today, if anybody can, can implement that and change their life, I'm happy for them. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, a member at our gym and he went and had the sleep study and, you know, did it all in that direction 
got on a CPAP and within a couple of weeks, he's like, Hey, this is like, he's PRing lifts and he's feeling great and, and life is good. And it was all, it all came down to sleep apnea. Oh yeah. And it can happen within a couple of days. You'll wake up and your brain fog's gone. You've got all this energy and you got your to-do list and you're out painting the gutters and mowing the lawn and washing your car. And it's, it's pretty ridiculous. And I'm, and I'm not being, I'm not exaggerating. I lived it. I know what it's like. So it's extraordinary um, uh, benefits. I really hope that people will. And you don't have to be fat to have apnea. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Jordan Fagenbaum from Barbell Medicine is only 198 pounds. He has a sleep apnea. He has a, a CPAP because he has a thick neck. It's just about crowding of the airway, and everybody's different. So if you snore and wake up tired, there's a, I, I, I include in the vertical diet a, uh, what's called a stop-bang questionnaire to, to help you understand the symptoms and how to kind of uh, pre-diagnose yourself, at least, to, to trigger you to want to go in and, and get a, a sleep study, which I highly recommend. Um, but they can be expensive if you don't yeah. have medical coverage. And uh, in the absence of getting those tests, uh, you know, use the stop-bang questionnaire. I just asked my clients why. I, you know, I just asked Hofthor's wife or Shaw's wife, does he snore? Yeah. I was down in Texas, uh, I can't remember where I was, I think it was Philadelphia a couple of weeks ago, and I ran into um, uh, Steve Kuklo and Amanda Latona, and somehow the conversation came up, and I just asked Amanda, does Steve snore? He's 295 pounds. Yeah. Of course he snores. You know, yeah. I, I was asking the question I already knew the answer to, and she's like, oh, yeah, and he falls asleep, like, everywhere, in the car, and, you know, a plane, and he's constantly tired. And I'm like, well, he's got sleep apnea. Does he have a CPAP? No. And I was just blown away. So I, you know, I text him the links to where he could get a CPAP. I looked up his city. I pulled up Craigslist. I, I looked up the sleep station that, that he should buy uh, and, and, and gave him the link and told him to get on it as soon as he got home. Uh, it's that important. It's, yeah. a, it's a huge piece, particularly for people who, uh, you know, are trying to, to you're in sports or trying to have some sort of performance success it's a monster yeah that is a huge takeaway um i actually just lent my mind to my brother i i don't think i have it but when i got into this vertical diet stuff i i bought one because you know you talked about how important it was and um i personally didn't see any difference with it and so i lent it to my brother and i'm excited to see how that all works with him that's great so um, I told you an hour, so I don't want to. I don't want to take you more than an hour. There's a few more questions, but um, yeah. But let me do a speed round here. I'll see if I can keep my mouth shut. No, you're Go good. I love you. <laughs> so um, there's only only three more, but honestly, you can okay. talk as much as you want. I, I'm, I'm enjoying all this, and so I, I know the listeners will. Um, right. Someone was asking about soy and gynecomastia. You know. I'm not a fan of soy. I just don't think it's a great protein to begin with. Whether or not those phytoestrogens can cause gynecomastia, eh, I don't want to be a zealot. Um, but I just think there's better protein choices. Obviously, I, I recommend an animal protein first and foremost. If you are um, a vegetarian or vegan, I have a section in the diet that makes some recommendations. It's the best protein sources to get. And some of the soy isolates and pea isolates. Uh, do have an adequate amount of leucine to give you to optimize muscle protein synthesis. And I re recommend some of the other supplementation that's necessary on those diets, particularly vegan diets, the iron, the B12, um, so that, you know, folks can, can optimize their health. 
So I, I'm not concerned with, with soy necessarily for that reason. I just don't think it's a great protein. Okay. Unless it's the soy isolate, which, which does in fact have enough leucine in it um, to, to provide you that, to optimize muscle protein synthesis. Okay. So yeah, I guess same thing. Hop over to the diet and check it out. I like, I can't even tell people enough how, how good this is. Like hop over to the website and just buy the PDF. It is so <laughs> Yeah. Um, so at what point, if people are trying to optimize their testosterone, at what point should they consider supplementation? I think they would have to have more than a couple indicators. One, I would want them to be hypogonadal, which right now I think is under 225. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm kind of throwing it out there. These numbers seem to move around depending on who's yeah. testing. So you'd want to be hypogonadal. Uh, first of all, you'd, you'd want to have low T and then you want to have some other associated symptoms. Maybe you're, uh, you've got fatigue, maybe you've got ED, maybe you've got, uh, your body composition has changed for the worse. Uh, those kinds of things. Uh, I think if you, if you can couple together a few of those, uh, then it might be time. But I will say this, I work with one of the strongest guys on the planet who's a lifetime natural competitor and he's got a testosterone level of 400. So I'm not convinced that the testosterone level in and of itself is, is really the be all end all. And uh, that's coming from a guy who's, who's used performance enhancing drugs in competition. Yeah. And you would think I would be, you know, testosterone. And uh, I use, you know, now at 51 and having used testosterone in competition, of course I have, I'm hypogonadal. So I use uh, uh, testosterone replacement therapy. I use a cream uh, twice a day. I use a testosterone cream and my testosterone levels kind of vary between last time I got tested, they were only 225. Yeah. But the problem is, is that I don't take the cream the night before the morning of the test. Yeah. And so, you know, those, those are, it's pulsative is the, the, the way testosterone works. It's might be a little higher in the morning or a little lower in the, uh, the afternoon. So it kind of depends on when you get tested. But having said that, uh, I, I haven't lost any strength and my body composition is the same and I don't have an extraordinary high testosterone level. Uh, just using a, a cream, which isn't, you know, it's not as effective as, say, a, uh, uh, an injectable, but it yeah. does allow me to keep a lower estrogen. It, it I don't have the water retention. Um, you know, it, it increases DHT, so uh, your, uh, which is an androgen, so, you know, your virility is good. Uh, your sex drive is good without having, you know, but I don't think the testosterone level itself measured in the blood is uh, is something you need to fixate on, and, yeah. and this is this is new. I I didn't feel that way ten years ago. I thought that that made a huge difference. If you moved your testosterone from four hundred to twelve hundred, I thought that was going to make a big difference. But now, after working with as many clients as I have and myself experiencing it, uh, I don't see a, a big difference. Now, the huge super physiological doses. People are getting testosterone levels up north of uh, two thousand or three thousand. Sure, there's some you know some uh, additional uh, results that can be garnered from that, but it all comes at a cost. Now you've got the gynecomastia side effects, the water retention side effects, the acne, uh, you know, all of those things, you know, are associated with those high doses. So I don't think they're necessary. That's, that's my, uh, and I also think that you can impact that, uh, that natural level. And I put a low testosterone fix, fix kit in the, in the program, give you a list of things that you can do, optimizing your thyroid function, getting adequate sleep, uh, you know, you're working out, obviously, as a stimulus for that. There's a lot of things you can do that could preempt you from having to get on testosterone because once you do, you're kind of, it's kind of, you're on it for life. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and, and I, you know, obviously there's some variations there. And then a lot of doctors want to throw a, an anti-estrogen at you right away, which I think is a terrible thing. I think anti-estrogens, particularly the third generation anti-estrogens that are out there now, completely shut you down. Uh, that'll affect your libido and that can affect your strength and your joints and all kinds of things. So I'm real cautious about, you know, getting on testosterone and then probably getting poor advice. You get a shot a week is not as nearly as um, optimal as, as taking a shot every other day in terms of keeping your levels using the same total dose, but breaking it up and microdosing it. I address that in the vertical diet, avoiding the anti-estrogens unless you're um, the kind of individual that, that responds poorly to some people respond differently than others. They'll, they'll get higher estrogen. And um, some of that can be dependent upon the, the dosing frequency and how much you use. You take 200 milligrams a week, uh, you might get more water retention and estrogen conversion than if you took 50 milligrams every other day. So there's a significant difference there. That's really interesting stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I'm, <laughs> I don't even have anything to say because now I'm just thinking about all of that. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately I address all of it in the vertical diet. These yes. are questions I've been asked many, many times <laughs> over the years. And so I do have a low testosterone quick fix kit. I do have a whole section on HRT with these recommendations of microdosing. And uh, so it's all in there. I just, I can't, I can't, unfortunately, I can't give a short answer because there's, there's no, a lot of information that needs to be uh, understood before you, and people who get on testosterone therapy, their red blood cell count may elevate and some doctors will suggest that they donate blood. And that's a concern as well, because if you've got erythrocytosis, which is an increase in red blood cells, but you don't have polycythemia, which is an, a blood thickening problem, uh, then you shouldn't donate blood uh, unless you reach a significant level above normal because you're going to start depleting your platelets and depleting your ferritin, which is your iron storage. And if you just start donating blood every month because you've got a little bit of erythrocytosis, you're going to start depleting your iron and your ferritin storage and depleting your platelets. And then you're going to be fatigued and tired and not understand why. So it's not universal out there when you deal with general practitioners or even HRT doctors. Sometimes they make recommendations that can adversely affect you in another area. So I, I put all that information along with the links of literature and the research and the videos uh, for great doctors like Dr. Morgan Fowler who have studied this stuff for 30 years. Uh, that's all in there. So I know a lot of times because people on shift work have lower testosterone, um, doctors will prescribe it pretty, pretty quickly. Hey, you're, you've got low T, here's the testosterone. What would you say to someone who is trying to, to get off of that? Or is it even, can you get off of it because you've been on it for so long? And it depends on how much you use and how long and how you respond to post-cycle therapy. You may need some uh, HCG and Clomid to get your LH and FSH back up to get your own system started. And it may take a few months. Um, that's kind of how I would look at it. You might be able to transition to a cream, uh, which would, be a little easier to use and it, it might not have the side effects. I'd encourage people to give it a try, to try and get off for a while, see how it affects you, and then to implement the lifestyle changes that might also uh, help uh, increase your own testosterone. Of course, that's the, the primary one's going to be the sleep, and we already talked about how to manage that even if you're on shift work. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Stan, I could probably talk to you all day and still want to talk more, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut us off. Uh, I know you're a busy guy and you've got, well, you just have a ton going on. 
Um, so I, I super appreciate your time um, coming here and talking with us. And honestly, if there's anything that we can do uh, for you, please, please let me know. Um, yeah, thanks. But All is there... the stuff we talked about, again, anybody who wants to, to see it in great detail, they can always just go to all my stuff's under Stan Efforting. My website is at is, uh, staneffording.com. My Instagram is at Stan Efforting. My YouTube is Stan Efforting. So if just wants to Google it or look those things up and take a deeper dive into the things we talked about today, uh, it's all on my website. There's a link to the vertical diet on there where they can uh, really, you can get lost for a month in all of the research and literature and videos and articles that I included. And it's not all boring uh, studies that are you know, hyper-specific. I put articles in there that cover, you know, that broadly cover the topics and look at the meta-analyses of the research. I put a ton of really great video links to YouTube for professionals in the industry who've sum summarized uh, all the different things that we've discussed today uh, in, a, in a really easy to understand fashion. So I think it's worth a it's worth a trip down that road. Absolutely, and I'll throw all of that your YouTube, your Instagram, everything in the show notes, uh, so people can very easily just click on it and, and head over there. Awesome. So thanks, all brother. Right. I appreciate. Hey. Thank you. I really appreciate it and have a great day. You too. Bye now. Thanks.